Hello, my name is Emily Jansen, and this is the Leadership is Female podcast. We interview women in the sports and entertainment businesses to teach you the tips and the mindset that will get you to the top faster. Marion Wright Edelman said, you can't be what you can't see. Let's bring visibility to women who are crushing it in their roles. Join us week after week, season after season, as we reach back to extend a hand to pull you forward. We will lead you forward because leadership is female. Zaylene Jan Muhammad is a passionate leader with a wealth of holistic experience on the brand agency and property sides of the sports marketing business. As the USOPP's Head of Partnership Development and Innovation, Zaylene works at the intersection of sales and partner management and activation, using market data to help evolve and innovate business strategy and opportunities for existing and future Team USA and LA28 partners. She also works closely with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee to bring future forward solutions to Team USA athletes and the movement as a whole. Earlier this year, Zaylene was named by Adweek as one of their 2021 Women Trailblazers and was recently inducted into the Sponsorship Hall of Fame. Her approach to sponsorship strategy has been featured in two books, What Sponsors Want and Beyond Harvard. To say she is a wealth of knowledge in the sports business landscape is an understatement. You will learn so much from this interview. Z is humble, kind, generous, approachable, and she's just so human. I cannot thank her enough for sharing her voice. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to find out how you can get involved in LA28. A proud Canadian, Zaylene now lives in the Bay Area with her husband, Arif, and two sons, Aiden and Ishan. So without further ado, let's go. Welcome to the Leadership is Female podcast. Zaylene Jan Mohammed, Senior Vice President, Head of Commercial Development and Innovation at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Properties. Z, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Emily. I'm so excited to be here and sorry for the long title and introduction, but you got it perfectly. So we're set. All right. Awesome. Well, I'll let you tell our audience who you are and what you do. Yeah. So um, I am um, Canadian born Indian female and have been in sport my entire life and grew up in Canada thinking I was going to be a professional hockey player like most Canadians and would sneak out of the house and play sports, pro- primarily ice hockey or or ball hockey. And, you know, I think finally my parents caught me doing that and realized I had a passion for, for sport. And um, when I realized that I wasn't going to be good enough to actually play, uh, I decided that I was going to work. And it's been the best decision I could have ever made for myself because I literally wake up every day thinking that I have the best job and that's been in every job that I've had. Uh, And sometimes it doesn't even feel like a job. So currently I am um, leading the commercial development and innovation group at LA 28, which is the organizing committee for the games that will come back in the United States to the United States in uh, 2028, as well as the US Olympic and Paralympic properties group which um, manages the commercial rights across Team USA and LA28. And what that basically means is that my team is responsible for thinking about how to better engage fans in the movement and how to monetize 
and, and provide new revenue streams that maybe we haven't thought of before. For most of us who, who are around my age, we've grown up watching the Olympic and Paralympic Games in a certain way, glued to the television with your family likely, and it's been a part of how you've grown up and, and what culture was when you were growing up. Everybody kind of has those memories of sitting in front of the TV and remembering an iconic moment or remembering somebody win a medal or remembering this really great feat and accomplishment. It's different today. You know, my kids are nine and almost 12 and they don't consume anything the way that I consumed when I was growing up. And so we're in this really interesting time in sport, I would argue just broadly and generally of thinking through how that next generation of fans is going to participate in sport, how they're going to consume sports, and how they're going to spend money against sport, because it's going to be very different in the future versus what has happened in the past. And that's that's basically my job. So many things we're going to dig into. LA 28, you being a mom, having this this big job, this big career, but let's start back at the beginning. How did you get there? You started your career at MLS as an account executive. How did this experience form the foundation of your career? And what's one thing you learned that stuck with you today? Yeah, so I actually, you know, got my first entry into sport just a bit before Major League Soccer. I did my graduate degree at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and they had a great sport management program. And it was a big deal for me to go there, not because the program was great, which it is, but but more because of my background and moving away from home, which felt really far away for very traditional Indian parents, um, particularly parents of a, of a female. And that was a big deal for me to do that. And I, I think I was so ready to move and so willing to kind of push against the norm at that point in time that both sides realized that this was the way to go. And so I would say my first breakthrough, Emily, was was just getting to school. And once I got to school and realized like that there was this industry out there that I would fit into so well um, and that was ripe for change and ripe for more gender equality and ripe for uh, more diversity and inclusion, um, it was a little daunting, but also so exciting at the same time. And so I did, you know, within my schooling, I did an internship with um, the National Hockey League, which for every Canadian is like a dream come true. And I would call home and be like, today I'm walking into the NHL. And I'd call home the next day. I'm like, today I'm also walking into the NHL. And it was, it was super exciting. And my first job, to your point, my first official job was at Major League Soccer. And my job there was to take care of a, a handful of our sponsors and make sure that they were getting the assets that they paid for and activating, right? Using their assets to market their products. So I took care of Adidas and Pepsi and, and a handful of others. That was a, it was a very formative part of my career uh, because I think that there is this perception that if you work in sport, you're going to have a lot of fun and you're going to go to a lot of events and you're going to hang out with all the athletes and you're going to party. And you go to, you know, you go to a fair share of events, but everything else is just really, really hard work. And it takes 
a certain type of work ethic to work in this industry that I think people aren't aware of. Like I was grinding and I was, and I realized that that might be the thing that set up, set me apart. Right. And so when people ask me this question of like, what do you think may has made you so successful? There's been a couple of different things, but the first thing and probably the most important thing has been my willingness and desire to work really, really hard, to put in the time, to put in the hours, to put in the grit, and that the realization that maybe not everyone is like that, right? When I interview for jobs, when I'm talking to people about my next job or what my next job might be, and you know, one of the things that I will say in my interviews is always like, you will not find a person who will work harder than I will. Because I believe that A, it's true, and B, it's it's definitely one of the things that sets me apart. I love what you said there. And I I had some flashbacks at the beginning of my career when I worked for the Chicago Bulls. And I felt the same way walking into the United Center, past the Michael Jordan statue. But then once you got inside, like you had to do the job. Yeah. And that was making a ton of phone calls to people who didn't necessarily like want to talk to you. So um, it was the grind. It was entering the grind and putting in the willing, you know, the work and the willingness to do the work day after day to uh, to keep the engine running. Um, so I, I love that description. And I love that you carried that trait with you through your entire career as still just a grinder, but a grinder who's who's learned and grown so much along the way. And the next step in your career, I think really helped you with, with that growth and with those moves. You made the move to GMR marketing and your lead contributions were to the Visa Olympic sponsorship activation, which foreshadowed really the next 10 years in your career working for Visa and then back at GMR. What did you contribute that made you stand out and what advice do you have for people who are working as members of large teams who want to stand out? You may roll your eyes right now, Emily, but I'm going to use I'm going to use a hockey analogy. Okay, so when I think about my my time at Major League Soccer, I think of myself as like a a fourth line player or grinder, right? Someone who's in the corners and just getting the really hard work done. My time at GMR, the first round that I was at GMR, you know, I moved up to this third line, maybe sometimes the second line. And what I mean by that is. I still had to do some grinding. I was still in the corners. I was still doing a lot of work and putting in the time. But I think where I was able to stand out in my time there was that I, I was thinking differently, right? I was bringing something different to the table uh, in a process or, a, or an approach or even in how I built relationships with others that they valued and maybe hadn't seen before. And so as you move up lines in, in ice hockey, right, your role is different. And theoretically, right, you're, you have more responsibility for the team's success as you move up, you know, on a hockey team. Same, same goes for me in my career. That was what happened at GMR is like I had a different set of responsibilities. I could have done those in the same ways that they had been done by my predecessors, but I for some reason, because I saw something, I saw an opportunity, I just saw a, a, a way to be different. I decided to bring a thoughtfulness to that job 
that was recognized both at the agency that I was working at, but also with the clients at Visa, which kind of provided a little bit of foreshadowing of what would happen kind of in the next phase of my career, right? So I think that I think that's probably what it was. It was just a different level of thoughtfulness um, that was valued. Well, and speaking of your thoughtfulness and your ability to think of doing things differently, you have been recognized for your strategy in sponsorship. Tell us a little bit about that approach and what your strategy is. Yeah, I I wish I could say like this is the formula of you know how I've been able to do what I've done and or this is the formula for being strategic. Um, I think for every person it's a little bit different. You know, I have a team right now that I work with who's amazing. Uh, and they both report into me, but yet they provide a different way of thinking strategically that is not the way that I that uh, not the way that I think. And I think that's what makes our team actually really successful. So the first thing I will say is like there's no magic formula. Everybody is going to come to the table with a different way of thinking through a problem. You know, I think the important things is if you if you are in a role or have a desire to bring a strategic point of view, you have to be comfortable with a couple things. You have to be comfortable with not having the answer right away. Typically when you get a problem that is a, that requires a strategic point of view, it is a hard problem to solve. It is not a black and white problem. It's usually something in the gray and it has multiple layers that you have to unpack and you have to be comfortable unpacking and you have to be comfortable with the time it takes to unpack it. So that would be number one, like, are you comfortable in the gray? Can you unpack really complex problems to really get at the core of the issue? The second thing that you have to be able to do is be really comfortable with data and understand what that data is telling you, spend time in the data, be comfortable in Excel, right? That, that is part of the formula for people that have um, a, a strategic or consultative job or responsibility. And the third and final piece is the ability to, you know, sift through the data, figure out what the answer or potential recommendation might be and piece it back together. So you've basically deconstructed a puzzle, moved all the pieces around to see like how this puzzle can actually work together, put the puzzle back together and present it to someone where it makes sense. And so that, that I think is, is, the, is the magic formula and probably the reason that I've been successful. It's not necessarily that I've come up with a really good answer to a problem. That's some of it for sure. I've been able to put the puzzle back together in, 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 in some cases, but it's also, can I convince someone, am I able to tell that story back to someone where they look at me and be like, and they're like, yeah, like that is, that is the answer. I agree. And I'm going to fund you. I'm going to support you. I'm going to drive this forward. I'm going to help you with the politicalness of this situation. Right? So you're always going to need to convince somebody um, and that part is just as important as actually figuring out the answer to begin with. I think everyone needs to hit rewind and listen to that part just one more time, because I'm sure we can all think about situations in our careers and in our jobs where we're sort of stuck in this like cycle of recycle, 
We did it before, let's do it again. We did it before, let's do it again. This is the way that it's always been. When, you know, at the top of the interview, you really stated the next generation of fans consumes media differently and spends differently. So the old approach is no longer the new approach. And what you just laid out is, is the way that you make progress moving forward. Yeah. And I think like a lot of us, and I still do this at times where we will, we will listen to a conversation or be in a meeting and you'll be like, well, I know the answer to that. Like, I, why don't they just listen? I know. And it's, and it's, it's not just about like, you knowing the answer, it is understanding that there's probably 50 other questions that are not being said in the room, but, are, but exist and figuring out how that answer that's in your brain actually can be navigated through all of those little roadblocks or barriers. Right. And, and it's, and it's acknowledgement that there's, there's probably some things that are bigger that you have to address um, and verbalizing how you would actually do that. So I catch myself still, even to this day, even with some of the success I've had, like being in a meeting and getting frustrated and being like, well, I know the answer. And then having to sit back and be like, wait a second, do I actually know the question? Do I have all of the questions? And because I don't, um, and, and there's a humility that has to come with you, with you and being a strategic person that, um, you don't have all the answers. And even if you have an answer, someone might say no, and you may have to go back to the drawing board. So that, that, the magic formula is all of the things I laid out, but you need a certain type of EQ, a certain type of um, humbleness, because it. A lot of people are going to say no. That's not. That's not it. You have to be okay. Yeah, and um, and you've been okay, and you've done fantastic because you've won a lot of awards in the last six years, including the SBJ Forty Under Forty in twenty sixteen. The leaders, leaders under 40 class of 2017, 21 Ad Week Trailblazer, and 2021 Sponsorship Hall of Fame inauguration. Wow. Okay. Congratulations. And, and what do these awards mean to you? And how do you think the recognition has helped your career? Um, first of all, when you say them out loud, I feel old. But I think, I think the response to that question the right answer, or maybe the, the answer that most people will say or want to say is like, you know, it means nothing and it's all about the team. And, and some of that is, is obviously really true. Like I, in all of those places in my life would not have been where I was or not have received the recognition that I did without a lot of people around me supporting personally and professionally. But maybe the politically incorrect answer, Emily, is it means a lot, right? Because it validates decisions that I made very early on in my life and means that the grit and the work and all of the things that we talked about at the beginning have resulted in something that is valued. And so it definitely, it's important to me. It's important for me as a female. It's important for me as an Indian female. It's important for me when I have conversations with my parents and they're like, did we make the right decision? I'm like, yes. I mean, here, there's some, 
there's some hardware that tells you that this was the right decision. And I think this is the first time that someone's asked me this question where I've been very honest and reflective to say, yeah, like these are, these are important things and I'm proud of them. And I'm proud of them because of it's, it signals to me what I've been able to do, but it also gives me permission or gives me the responsibility to use those things to help push others to say, this is possible. You can do this. Like I have just started what is possible for you to do. And that's, that's why it's important for me. Right. Um, but thank you for asking that question because it's forced me to kind of say some things out loud that maybe I've never said before. Oh, it's beautifully stated. Of course you give credit to the team, but it means a lot to you personally in your career. I mean, they're, they're your awards and it's, it's sort of the, the proof in the pudding. Like you did the work, you put in the work, you won the accolades. It's like in team sports, when you win the championship, right? Like it means something and it yep. says something about the work ethic that went in and that you made the right choices and you were on the right path. So I think um, that was beautifully stated and ultimately put you in a position to, to win the roles, to earn the roles that you can make another really big impact and influence on a greater level, which is where you're at right now as SVP. Let's see if I can get it again. Okay. SVP head of commercial development and innovation yep. Yep. at LA 28. Okay. You've been there three and a half years. Yep. How did you earn this role and, and what are your, your main responsibilities? So the amazing thing about the sports industry, Emily, which you know, is, um, and amazing is, is one word that people will use, but sometimes, but not all the time. It is very insular and it's small. And, you know, I've been really fortunate that the roles that I've had kind of in the back half of my career have been. Um, the result of people seeing my work early on in my career and saying, hey, like, I know how you think and I know what you can do. And we have something for you that needs that. Um, and so that's how this role happened. My a former colleague of mine at Visa was building out his team and said, we have this need for someone to come in and think differently for us and to think um, about innovation in the Olympic movement in ways that we've never thought of before. And I think you should come and do this work for us. Uh, and so that piece was, was relatively easy. It kind of came along in the right time of my life where I was looking for things professionally and personally um, and needed that type of change. Um, and, and so that's how, that's how the role kind of came to be. It's evolved over time. You know, when I started... Uh, it was very much about how do we stand up a, a, a sponsorship group and a sales group? Where are we building revenue from um, from a sponsorship perspective? And, and you know, how do we support the property in that way and bring in some some large investments? I've now changed bosses, so now I report into our our chief operating officer, uh, and that happens so that the innovation that I was doing you know, just on the commercial side could be more broadly spread across the entire organization. And so um, I still think about sponsorship and categories within sponsorship that maybe are not typical or traditional categories. And so the deal with Salesforce is a really great example of a company who is not traditionally spent in the sponsorship space, 
um, but how you build a category, how you build product integration, how you build a tech stack, that was all work that was done by my team, my, by, my, by me and my team. Um, but now I also get to work through the rest of the organization and talk about fan engagement. You know, one of the things that we built on the commercial development innovation team was an athlete marketing platform. So now, and that's not just, that's not revenue for LA 28, that's revenue that goes directly into athletes' pockets. So my job is monetization, but it doesn't have to be money coming into LA 28. It can be money going into athletes. It can be money going into national governing bodies. It can be money going into Team USA as a property. Um, and, and the role, the evolution of the role allows me to have just broader purview, which has been awesome and just better opportunity for me as well. What's been the biggest challenge you've encountered so far with LA 28? Um, it's actually a really weird challenge. I think um, the games were awarded to LA um, earlier than any other games has been awarded. I think it was awarded like 13 years out or something like that, right? And that's not a normal cycle that the IOC um, usually or typically undertakes. And I think because of that, all of, you know, because of that and because of the team that was hired, which is all people that have like type A personalities, very driven, very good ability to think differently. Um, we all sat there at the beginning and we're like, well, we have a lot of time. So we can do amazing, like we should really think differently and do amazing things. Um, and that only, that can only happen when you have time. We are now in a normal game cycle, right? And so now we're at this place where like, oh, wait, we actually have to put on a games. And so you have this really, like the challenge is how do you take the time you had and have with the people you have and really create meaningful change for the Olympic and Paralympic movement? And we talked about some of that at the outset. How do you make sure that our kids are still watching? How do you make sure the athletes are financially stable? How do you make sure there's parity within the Paralympic on the Paralympic side as there is with the Olympic side? There's some big things that we think that we should be tackling because we're stubborn and bullish and because we have time while still making sure that there's a games and a great games that's put on in LA. And so I think that's that's been our biggest challenge is like finding the balance between both of those things. And we have an, an organizing committee and a games planning and delivery team who is awesome. And they're like, hey guys, like I know you want to spend time here fixing all of these things that are going to take a long, but we we need help on this side, right? So it that that's been the biggest challenge definitely for me is is I love the Olympic movement. I've been in it for many, many years. I want it to last for decades and centuries to come. And my natural headspace is to go in this direction, right? And be like, well, let's solve this fan engagement issue. I can't do that every day. And I have to really be focused on spending my time on the things that are more near term so that we have a great games that we actually put together. It's an interesting problem. At Leadership is Female, we are serious about supporting you in your career. That includes the tips to get you ahead inside your current organization or provide you with the next big opportunity in a new role. That's why we have partnered with Legacy Search, an executive recruiting firm specializing in mid to senior level executive searches across professional, collegiate, and minor league sports. 
Check out the openings listed at LegacySportsSearch.com or in our monthly Leadership is Female newsletter. Hint, if you have not signed up for the newsletter, head to leadershipisfemale.com. If you find a job listed at Legacy Sports Search that looks like it should be yours, email us at leadershipisfemale at gmail.com and we will introduce you directly to the opportunity. This is your career. Make the most of it. If you are listening to this podcast, I know you are a busy professional. We can agree we are always looking for products that are convenient and make life easier. Mobot water bottles are one of these products. It's a water bottle and a foam roller in one. I use the water bottle at the gym, staying hydrated in boot camp and then flipping the bottle on its side at the end of class to quickly foam roll my legs. It helps with recovery and gets me back to work faster. Get yours at mobot.com and use the code leadershipisfemale, all one word, to get 15% off. Support Lonnie Cooper, the female founder of this product, and support yourself. This is a must-have wellness water bottle. Yeah, I can so see that you're focused on the future of the Olympics as as its own entity, but you have to focus on LA 28, which, you know, the days keep falling off the calendar, right? So what yeah. do we have to look forward to with the United States hosting the Olympic Games in just six short years? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, listen, if, and and I say this with all my Canadian blood running through me, so this takes a lot of effort to actually say out loud, but I believe it. LA is going to be an amazing city to host a games in the United States. And that is true for a couple of different reasons. They've hosted the Olympics before twice, right? So they know how to do it. Uh, most of us will remember, or many of us will remember 1984, which was kind of a transcending moment for the Olympic games. And I believe that that will happen again in LA. So that just LA as a city hosting a games, hosting a summer games, it just has a history and a, and a belief within the people of LA that this is something that we should do and we should do it well. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is it's going to be the first time that LA hosts the Paralympic Games. And because of the mindset of all of us that are working and because of where the world and society is right now, I think that you will see things out of Paralympic athletes and out of the Paralympic Games that you've never seen before. And that just gives me goosebumps just to think about. The third is because LA is just this iconic sports city already without the games coming to it um, that has venues and capacity and functionality that doesn't have to be built, right? Our athletes village is already built, right? It's gonna be at UCLA. UCLA already houses tens, like thousands of athletes, thousands of students on a day-to-day -day basis and knows how to do it. So, and this happens with other venues. SoFi already exists. There's going to be a new Intuit Dome that's basketball. But like, there's just things that are in the city already um, and know how in the city already that, you know, is, is probably unmatched, you know, compared to any other city in the world. And then the, I would say the last piece, Emily, is um, that LA brings to the table that just really excites me is this like, mix of culture and music and food and people that I think I want to say will just be this like 
all-inclusive party that I'm just so excited to be in the middle of, right? Like not to, we don't do this often where we use other properties as an example, but if you kind of take yourself back to last year's Super Bowl and watching the halftime show and how that felt to you, not only to have like music from your past be put in front of you, but so many different types of artists coming together and bringing this like raw mix of different cultures, different races, different types of people, not only on stage, but in the stadium and watching, just coming together and having this like amazing moment. That's what I think that LA will bring. Like, it's just, I don't know any other city, you know, London was probably the other city that was able to do it, but LA is going to be magical that way. I can't, I can't wait. It's easy to see from that explanation, like what gets you out of bed. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I'm pumped up. I'm a a huge Olympic nerd. Like your original explanation of like the viewer experience is like a reincarnation of my childhood. And then, you know, I had to point out though, what you, what you said about the venues and the athlete village and also about tending to the Olympics and the Olympic movement as a whole, I think what you're laying out in LA is really one of sustainability where you're not investing in all this infrastructure without a potential plan to use it after the games have ended. And I think that can lay a blueprint for the cities of the future that I feel like we could only do here. You know, you can only do in a city like, like LA um, or one of our larger cities here in the U S. So that is, that's just incredible. And I would be remiss on this conversation on this podcast to ask you for listeners who want to get involved in this incredible event in LA 28 as a full-time employee or as a volunteer, which for anyone starting their career or, you know, at any place in their career, huge opportunity for those who, who want to get involved, where do they start? What should yeah. they do? Is there a timeline they should be looking at for when you're onboarding? You know, what does that look like? Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that question because we are going to need help. So uh, the organization right now between LA 28 and us Olympic and Paralympic, Paralympic properties is probably at about, I want to say about 150 people right now. Emily, we are going to scale to around 5,500 full-time employees by 2028. That is rapid and exponential growth of capacity, like human capacity that we are going to need in-house. And so if people are looking to work, right, this is a full-time job, that should hopefully provide some hope and some opportunity that should just stay in your head of like, there is going to be there is going to be a need here. I would say the timing for that need is likely after Paris is when we'll scale the most. You know, we'll we'll ramp a little bit in this next year for sure. But after Paris, when the games, the next summer games are officially ours, is when we'll see the the highest rate of of hiring. And, you know, we have a LinkedIn page, we have a website. Like just stay on our channels and you, you should see a number of opportunities, you know, from now until, until the games, that's only one way to get involved. We will have a very, very strong volunteer force, much like every games. um, If people have been on site, 
that we're going to need help with. And that will range, I think, anywhere between 40, 50,000 to 75,000 people. So yeah, I mean, it's a big number. This is- Yeah, if you can't see my eyes, enormous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't 75,000. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember the actual numbers, but like, I think hosting an Olympic games is the equivalent of doing seven Super Bowls a day for 14 days, taking a break and doing it again for another four, 14 days, 10 to 14 days. So if that gives people kind of a perspective and a comparison point, that's what we're trying to do. And that's why we will need so many people um, to help us make it happen, right? So um, the volunteer program will be live, probably closer to the games. I would say two years out is when we'll start to probably see messages about how to, um, how to become a volunteer, how to train to become a volunteer, what your job or scope might be. Uh, all of those types of things that will be, I think, the the scaling, the highest scaling point. Um, but we will need we will need help. And I I would encourage anybody who is early in their career in sports and or is thinking about a career in sport. This is it's an awesome time to be working in this industry in this country because you're having you're getting a World Cup here in 26 and you're getting a games in 28, and there will be so many opportunities to learn and to get your get your feet wet a little bit and to figure out what it is that you actually really like to do and what you're good at. So come knocking, there's gonna be a lot. Yeah, fantastic. And the numbers and, and the way that you're scaling is incredible and encouraging. Um, for for anyone really at any point in your career, the chance to work at an Olympic Games in the United States or volunteer at one, like it, it's sometimes it's only once in a lifetime opportunity. So stick with it. That's All right, right. I want to ask you too, on a personal side, what's been the biggest hurdle that you've had to overcome in this illustrious career? Yeah, um, I saw this question. Uh, before you and I got on the phone and I was sitting there thinking about uh, how to answer it. Uh, this one, um, you could answer this a couple of different ways. People have hurdles professionally that they have to get through. And I've had a couple of those, but I think when it was framed up as the biggest hurdle, that one, that one has been personal for me. Um, when I had my second child, I had, I had postpartum and it was a very, very uh, long postpartum period for me and scary and life-changing and affected my career because for me going through that going through that time in my life it wasn't a depression for me per se but there was a lot of anxiety and I sat there in my own head for months thinking about um, well, so many different things, but like how I was going to get back on the horse or back on the treadmill and be the person that I was before I had, before I had Isan, my second. And I remember, I remember going back to work uh, and sitting in meetings and either not speaking up at all because I had just lost my confidence and I didn't know who I was as a person, or if I did speak, covering my mouth, like doing things, covering my mouth and just speaking, but not really wanting to be heard. 
Uh, and I had friend, like really dear friends at work who would who were just recognizing those things that I was doing and would kind of pull me off to the side and be like, hey, are you okay? Like what's going on? And I didn't change that behavior initially. Um, it took some time, but I think having a network or a group of people close to me that were just making sure I was okay um, helped me get through, help me just get through that time. But it took a year. It took a year, Emily, for me to feel like I was back to myself, my normal self. Um, it could have really affected my career if I didn't have the right people, including the right boss around me. And I think I became a different person after that in how I had perspective in my job, how I was, I made decisions differently. I made decisions about my own personal life differently. Um, I prioritized things differently. I was more willing after that point in time to make sure my teammates were getting more visibility and were in the room and were speaking their speaking their minds versus before where I was like, this is about me. Um, it just, it was the biggest hurdle, but it made the biggest impact, I think, in, in who I was as a person and how I lead my life today, both at home and at work. And it sounds weird and maybe not right to say, but I would, it, it's probably one of the best things that happened to me and I would do it again. I don't want to do it again, but I would do it again. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. I want to like reach through the yeah. Zoom and give you a hug. And also, you know, it's when we can look back at the tough times in our life and see the silver lining and like what it did for us to change our future and not happening to you, but like really happening for you yep. is amazing. And I think that uh, all of our listeners are really um, better for hearing about that. And, um, you know, knowing that maybe if you're going through your own personal struggle right now, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and um, to really consider the perspective that, that you laid out. So I yeah. love that. Thank you. No problem. All right. Before we jump into the final four questions, I want to ask you live in the Bay area with your husband and two sons. What is life like for you in Northern California at this stage in your life with a big job and a big family? I know before we got on the phone, you shared with me your spreadsheets of all the boys activities and who's bringing who where. So what tips do you have for women who are living big careers and have or are planning to have children at home? Yeah. I mean, the Bay Area, first of all, is beautiful and amazing. And I love it here. We have been here for, you know, 15, 20 years now. And it's just, it's a part of who I am and how I identify. That being said, it is crazy here. And it's crazy in a couple of different ways. It's crazy be, uh, because of everything that people think about traffic and distance. There's no public transportation anywhere. Like you are driving a lot of places a lot of the time, um, but it's also crazy because you're in an environment where the norm is to be really smart and successful. And that's not healthy all of the time, right? Like it's just, there's a lot of pressure living in a city like this. It's very cool, but it's a lot of pressure. 
And so, you know, I think for me, I wouldn't say that I have this right all of the time, but what we try to do in our house is we try to definitely make sure the logistics are taken care of and we're as organized as possible. And my husband has a very big job as well. And so we use a lot of Outlook calendars and spreadsheets and things that like help us stay coordinated so that we are not adding the, the stress of ambiguity to our lives. And we try to, we try to do that. We ask for help with friends. You know, we try to give our boys a little bit more responsibility. Today I have a doctor's appointment. And so the kids have to walk from school to a place where they can meet me because I just, that's just the way how, that's just how it goes. Right. And so some of that is just logistical and making sure that you're on top of things and getting the right help to support your family. The flip side of the pressure that living in the Bay Area does, we, we, we put a lot of emphasis on our kids, both because of like, you know, we are both educationally minded, we are Indian, like we have these like things in us that like, you're going to do well in school, you're going to do well in math, like all of the things that is stereotypical things. But we also really, Emily, like make sure that we have a pretty low key, a low key mindset to life. You know, when they walk in the door in the afternoon after soccer or bath, whatever it is, we're going to sit at the table together. We're probably going to laugh at each other. We're gonna, probably going to tell a lot of jokes. We're probably going to try to just like decompress and depressure, right? Take some pressure out of what we face every single day. Um, we laugh a lot in this house. There is just a lot of humor, a lot of bad humor around the table or in, in the house. We have people over all the time that like, I've always wanted to have a house. My aunt had this house when I was in Vancouver that had basically an open door. And you're, if you're in the neighborhood and you want to come by and you want to have a glass of wine or you want to say hello, come on by. And I think that that just, it just takes the air out a little bit. And when you're in your home and you have this level of comfort and um, ability to just be you, be you. Do you in the house, right? Like there's too much out there that you, that forces you to do all of these other things and be other, you know, be on all the time. When you're at home, don't be on. Um, now you have some responsibilities. You got to unload the dishwasher. There's things you have to do, but you can do it and tell me a joke and, you know, make a farting noise and I'm going to laugh, right? Um, so that's what we try to do here. Um, it works 90% of the time. This morning I yelled at my youngest because he lost his jacket and I lost my cool. That also happens, right? So that we try. I love that. Lost my jacket and I lost my cool. Me, it's jacket or water bottle or shirt or shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Any of those things. Just yeah. a little bit of responsibility. Like I only ask you to be responsible for like, Absolutely. I don't know, five things, five things. So <laughs> I mean, we're the same. It's the same. Oh, that was, that was just beautifully put that the, the, like the wave of going from, you know, high, like energy, intelligence, idea, strategy at work to like riding that roller coaster, like down the hill, you know, when you get home and just then throwing your hands up to have fun and then like climbing again the next day, like you can see sort of that ebb and flow 
in the Jan Mohammed family and, and yep. how you guys um, navigate career and parenthood is, um, is really beautiful and creates such a good picture, I think, for all of us to, um, to lean into and, and aspire to in, in our lives. That's awesome. I, and I think some, if you do it, if you do it, like not only do the kids need it, we need it. My husband and I need it. And it ends up kind of weaving into your day-to-day as well. So mm-hmm. while I'm still having to be intelligent and strategic and all of the things that work, the humor pokes its way through, right? And that, and that actually makes work go really well too. So um, it tends to, there's, there tends to be a little bit of overlap, which works really nicely. Perfect. All right. Final four. Then we'll get you out to your next meeting. All right. All right. What is one piece of advice you would give to women today to help them to level up tomorrow? Believe in yourself. Don't let others tell you what you can't do. Where are you traveling to next? Tonight, I am going home to Vancouver to see my parents and to celebrate my dad's 75th birthday and to allow my kids to spend a few nights with their cousins, which all of us are super excited. So it's happening soon. All right. What is your pump up song? Ah, this is going to sound really weird, but I, on repeat to pump myself up, will play Girl on Fire by Alicia Keys. It is the thing that gets me up. It just does. Not weird at all. I think uh, if you're not doing it, like, what are you doing? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally, what is your favorite quote? My favorite quote is actually something I heard really recently, um, and it's, it's I think, by Mark Twain, and it says, and the, and the quote is, the two most important days in your life are the day that you were born and the day that you figure out why. And I just, it speaks to me so much. I love it. All right, Zaylene, this has been incredible, leaderful, and so wonderful to get to know you and what you will bring to LA 28 and, uh, and to this industry with, with your leadership of, uh, of women. So thank you so much for being a part of this podcast and we can't wait to keep following you and all the great things you are born to do. Awesome. Thank you, Emily. I feel like I owe you such a great conversation. So appreciate it. With that, let's get into the top four takeaways. Number one, if you can't answer a question or solve a problem immediately, take time to unpack and answer correctly. Get comfortable in the gray. Number two, get comfortable with data and what it is telling you. Develop the ability to sift through data and piece it back together, then present. Ask yourself, can you commit and agree to your findings? Number three, Get organized and figure out the logistics of your whole life, including career, family, and friends. Ask for help and communicate. There is no stress in the ambiguity. You can be a high achiever and still have a low-key mindset to life. Laugh to decompress. And number four, there will be low times in life. Get the help you need to bring you through to the other side and find the silver lining in the tough experiences. Let the hard times happen for us, not to us. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Time is your most precious resource, and it means the world that you spent it with us. Please help us reach more people who need to hear these interviews by hitting the subscribe button and the five-star rating on your iPhone. Do you know someone who could benefit from this interview? Please share it. Take a screenshot and post your Instagram stories, copy the link and share on LinkedIn, or text that link to your colleague. 
The Leadership is Female podcast exists to showcase female leadership in sports and entertainment and give you the tips to level up. We will extend a hand back to lead you forward. Extend the same hand by sharing this with someone who needs to hear it. One last thing. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Leadership is Female. Now, take this lesson and run. Let's go. This podcast was recorded and edited by Emily Jansen, public relations by Paige Hegedus, and distributed by Anchor FM.